Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's edition of the Nitty Gritty Committee requires a trigger warning. We'll be discussing suicidal ideation and childhood sexual assault. There's my trauma, but then I deal with hundreds of victims hearing their traumatic experiences. Um, and then when you multiply that, you know, year by year, it was just, you know, the trauma it wasn't personal trauma only. It was also vicarious trauma. Yeah. And, and that's when you, when you start getting nightmares about those types of things. When you hear a parent is tall, telling you about the fact that he's just found out that a, uh, their parents uh, have been or a parent has been abusing their child for the last few or four years. And they and they have Sabbath meals with them every year. And, you know, the, the, the perpetrator and the victim are both there in the room at the same table. Mm-hmm. How do you address these things? And, much more common story that people actually believe happens. That's the voice of Manny Wax, who was raised in Melbourne as a member of an ultra-Orthodox sect of Judaism, as the second of 17 children. The family's entire life revolved around their family home and the yeshiva centre across the street where they went to school. Every single person they knew, they knew from yeshiva. As a child, Manny was sexually abused by two of those people and as a grown-up, he blew the whistle on the issue of child sexual abuse in the Orthodox Jewish community. It didn't go down very well. I'm Michelle Laurie and this is the Nitty Gritty Committee, stories about the guts and the glory of life and in this episode, we hear from survivor Manny Wax, author of Who Gave You Permission, available in bookstores now and you can also follow Manny's travels on Facebook. So I'm not finished the book yet, so I don't know how it ends, don't, don't wreck it for me, but... <laughs> But uh, I must say the, the first chapters were really unexpected to me and really sort of exciting because I was learning so much about Chabad. Thank you. That well happened. done. Thank you. <laughs> I, and I lived around that neighbourhood for years. You and I probably crossed past a thousand times around the Balaclava area of Melbourne, around St Kilda. Yep. And I saw you guys walking around. I, I kind of got the big hats and stuff, but I didn't understand what it meant and what... So much ritual and symbolism. Look, I mean, it's still very confusing because I'm yeah. sure you're saying the big hats, but you know what? Even within the hats fraternity, within the ultra-Orthodox community, there are massive variations. Yeah. So someone who you think may be Chabad is completely not because it depends on the style of hat, okay. how much he bends down the front of it. It, it really gets wow. very uh, specific. And we have no idea in Australia how many variations there are in our Jewish community, I don't think. No, it's... Yeah, well, look, many of us probably don't realise about the same thing about the Aboriginal community. Yes, you The different so languages right. and all that. So we yeah. just – because we just don't 
uh, interact as much as probably we should. And that's interesting too because as Australians we tend to get um, freaked out about the idea of people coming here and not integrating. I'm reading your book and I'm going, wow, I don't think most of us realise that your community was not integrated with mainstream Australia. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't watch television, you weren't allowed to see movies, read novels. That's right, that's right. I mean, our lives, uh, I'm just going to talk about uh, the the past for me, but, Mm -hmm. you know, their lives in the Chabad community or ultra-Orthodox community revolves around religion. So uh, from the moment you wake up till the time you go to sleep, the, the main aim of Chabad in particular, as opposed to some of the other groups, is with every waking hour of the day, you need to be thinking about what are we going to do to make the Messiah come sooner. And we say that every day. I believe, I believe in full faith that the Messiah is going to come imminently. And what that means is it's going to save the world, there's going to be peace, and we won't get into all the specifics of it, but you know, all the Jews apparently are supposed to be going to Israel, and the temple is supposed to come, the third temple. Right. So that's what we're supposed to be striving towards. How do we say that? Mashiach? Mashiach. Mashiach. Now, the reason that's on my mind is because I lived in the neighborhood and I remember seeing post like, yeah, big banners around saying Mashiach. He's on the way. He's coming. Yeah. Yeah, And there was a van and everything. Okay. So that's what that's about. And the photo you would have seen of the person next to it is the Lubavitcher Rebbe or the Chabad. So Lubavitcher is another word, another way of saying Chabad. It's simply the town in Russia where Chabad came from. So they have a picture of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, after whom I'm named, Menachem, because that was his name, Menachem Mendel. And and the belief was, while he was alive, is that he is the Messiah. That's what we grew up believing, Mm -hmm. that he was going to reveal himself. Mm -hmm. When we are worthy to receive him, then he will reveal himself. So much pressure. That's right. In every generation, they tell us that there is at least one person who's got the potential to be the Messiah, and it's up to us the community, the, the society, to be in a position where we're ready to accept him so that if he reveals himself, he will not run into hiding because we've just let him down. So so that's the, the world that you grew up in as a little boy. You're the second of 17 children. And I just the pressure, as I was reading those early chapters, was astounding to me. I've got a six-year-old son. I've got six-year-old twins, actually, boy and girl. But I'm imagining my little boy, Chewy Louie. Go ahead if you want to blow. <laughs> My little boy, Chewy Louie, with the amount of um, pressure that you had, you had younger brothers and sisters all the time. You're sort of a buddy system in your family. That's right. I mean, I'm the second oldest and the oldest boy. And um, everyone, once you get to a certain age, I think we're about seven, eight, nine, we started being responsible for the younger one because it was literally, almost literally one a year, every child. There's a year separating my older sister and myself and then it's like a year and one month between me and the next and then a year and two or three months and then, you know, eventually you'll miss one year and so, you know, the biggest difference is like a year and a half between kids. Wow. So, you know, that's 17 kids within 21 years, yes. we all had to pull our weight. Yeah, so you've got the pressure of pulling your weight, of, of taking care of the little ones, of the normal household duties, and also of being such a great Jewish kid that the Messiah will come back. That's right. Wow. So, so exactly. I mean, our, our entire lives really did... Um, encapsulating our involvement with the Yeshiva Center. You wake up in the morning, you go across the road into the ritual bath, which was in the Yeshiva Center. You go to synagogue, which is at the center. You go to school, you go to after school activities on the Sabbath. 
and even, you know, if we had a bit of spare time to play, there was a whole playground there. We didn't need to play in our front or backyard. We yeah, just right. played at the Yeshiva Centre. And you didn't need to go to a park where there were other kids, other no. non-Jewish kids. It was all over there. Yeah, we didn't even need any other kids, Jewish or non-Jewish, because we just say, who wants to play basketball? And we easily had You've three on three. 16 brothers and sisters. Yeah, you're not looking for other kids to no. play with. So I, I enjoyed, you know, the, the focus on, on, on family and on celebration and, uh, and uh, really just... That community, sense of community is always very reassuring and, and you just... I felt very protected and very, yeah, very safe. I from mean, the outside. From the outside, from us. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I mean, you wrote in your book uh, that you didn't know the difference between Jesus and Hitler when you were little. I know. And it sounds crazy to a lot of people when they hear that. They've yeah. asked me, really? And to me, it was a blur. I mean, it was one and the same. Just like... I didn't know my English, my secular birthday, my English birthday, till the age of 15. Yeah. I would always go by the Hebrew calendar. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, th- these things were all alien to me. I, I had no idea. I mean, I'd heard of the name Jesus. I heard of the name of, of, of Hitler. And obviously, to me, it was they were both wicked people. Um, turned on the Jews. Turned on the Jews, causing a lot of death and destruction. And, you know, it's horrible. We, I used to walk past the church and we used Whoa. to spit. Oh, really? Spit on the wow. side. Wow. And when I think about it, it just it's disgusting. It is absolutely disgusting. And then it's you know, when people we talk about the issue of anti Semitism and people attacking us and yeah, yeah I copped heaps of anti Semitism growing yeah. up, as you were saying before, the black hats there. So I was a walking target and plenty of times they threw eggs at us, uh, or you know, the more common thing was yelling from a, a fast moving car for effing Jews and that kind of stuff. Um, but the reverse racism, you know, every morning for example, and I do write this in the book, uh, we make a blessing. Thank you, Lord, for not making me a Gentile. Uh, yeah, non-Jew. Yeah, oh, thank you, Lord. The other one is, just to top it off, not just uh, at the Gentiles, but uh, sexist. Thank you, God, for not making me a woman. <laughs> I love that one. So, you know, and, and there are people who interpret it in different ways. You know, you yeah. have a rabbi sitting here and, and justifying and saying, well, it's not really that we're thanking that he's not. He's just the, by that we mean that he we're, we're thankful for he made, he made us for who we are. Sure. Yeah, sure. You know, I'm, I'm as sceptical as you <laughs> <Yeah>. are, really. <laughs> Well, I mean, I found it, uh, to be honest, when I read that in your book, I found it quaint. <laughs> I thought, oh, bless. Yeah. <laughs> Good. I'm so glad you're not women. Great. Good I, for you. I hope all the Gentiles have your kind of attitude. <laughs> well, you know, I'm very forgiving and open-minded because, and, and you're right, I've seen anti-Semitism at work um, in that neighbourhood and lots of places. But also you talk about the racism within the Jewish culture as well, these sects against each other. And there was a lot of spitting on each other and stuff as well. Astounding. Uh, I think, you know, for us, we grew up with the expectation that there'll be anti-Semitism because mm-hmm. that's what we're taught. We're taught about some of our past and the pogroms. So the Holocaust wasn't never, was never like a massive... We heard about it again. That's why there's that confusion wow. between Hitler and, uh, and, and Jesus. But also um, what was more common that we, we were taught was about Russia and the pogroms there before the Holocaust. Wow. That's, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that our Hasidic forebearers, the, the, the people who, you know, the Chabad is only 250-odd years old, ah. a bit more, 300 years max. Um, so, and that's where the Hasidic movement really stemmed from. The, the person before the Chabad movement, so the Baal Shem Tov, he was the one responsible for the Hasidic movement. Uh-huh. And out of him came probably dozens of different groups. Yeah. So... Uh, uh, and it came from the shtetls in Russia and, uh-huh. and all that. So that was how our, um, our, our 
introduction to, yes. to, to... Well, you know, Christianity is the same, obviously. I mean, these all these religions are sects That's right. of Christianity and they turn on each other every couple of hundred years. And uh, isn't it... Aren't we ridiculous? Exactly. But, you know, like, I think what hurt more was the internal racism. Yeah. I mean, I remember when we moved in from uh, from Israel to Sydney briefly for a year and a half and then we went to Melbourne. For the first weekends, every Sabbath, pretty much, at least that's how we felt like, and I speak to this about my with my siblings uh, once in a while, and we remember it as a very traumatic period because, yeah. you know, we used to get there and it used to be, they used to catch us one at a time and, and either, you know, uh, attack us verbally or physically and be really disgusting, you know. The other Jewish kids. Yeah, yeah, not just Jewish kids, the ultra-Orthodox kids, you know, wow. who were, you know, studying. You know, sometimes even the parents were involved and sometimes the, 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 the teachers were involved in calling some of my siblings. I never got called a bunk, but you bunk, you abo, dirty black. Uh, oh. But they had other names for all of us, which is dibs, dirty Israeli bastards. You know, exactly. And I thought Israel was the ultimate. Ah, that's where it all gets confusing. But it's we, so confusing. It is. And then we got called Palestinians because... you're dark-skinned? We don't know. We were Darkish. Israeli for that, but then okay. because, because we resorted to the weapons of the weak because they used to attack us physically and there were dozens of them. Uh-huh. So we found some stones and we started throwing it at them and then we became Palestinians. So, as you can imagine, those types of things were confronting. And I was the oldest boy out of my, you know, I had five boys under me. So we were the ones who were involved regularly, regularly in the, in the, in the, uh, in the assaults that were going on. I guess that's how it would be described. And I remember, I remember some of the parents or teachers getting involved in this, and that used to be really hurtful because they're people who are supposed to protect us. Uh, and my father couldn't do anything. He, he spoke to the big rabbi about it, and they ignored it, ignored it completely. So. That, that was a, 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 the first introduction we had to the Melbourne Chabad community. Mm. Uh, and then eventually, look, we learned to live with it. The, the ongoing racism, just like we learned to, to deal with the, right, with the anti-Semitism outside of the institution, we learned to deal with that internally. Eventually, we, we stuck up for ourselves as well because we realised, you know, let's do it as a team. And, and, and then we, I remember one incident, actually, I don't think, I don't I can't remember if we put it in the book, but you know, they took one of my brothers and chucked him in a rubbish bin. So we identified who the person was and then we cornered him and four or five of us got there and grabbed him and chucked him in the rubbish bin. And that actually changed the dynamics a little bit. They realised, we'll fight back. The Wax family. That's it. Were you a big family by standards, by the neighbourhood standards? Yes. Even by yes. those standards? You yeah, were. I would say the average in, in, in the Chabad community growing up, well, there were many families with, you know, 10, 12, 17 was a step above. Yeah, wow. I, I just, I don't know how your mum did it physically. It's incredible. How old are your youngest? 20 or 21. Oh, okay. So all grown up now. Yes, because the oldest is 41. I'm 40 and the youngest is 20. So yeah. it's like 21 years difference between the oldest and youngest. And the youngest is about to get married next month in Los Angeles. Wow. Do you all manage to have relationships? Are there any that you don't really have much of a relationship with? Or is this we, 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 with... we, we need to do a whole podcast okay. separately just on that, on yeah, the family bet. dynamics. I but it, it does also evolve. It changes uh, depending on a whole lot of different circumstances. Uh, you know, there are age gap issues. There are geography issues mm-hmm. in terms of where everyone is living. There are 17 of us. There's, you know, a few in Melbourne, a few in Sydney, a few in Florida, in New York, and in Israel. Wow. Um, if I haven't missed anyone. So, and yeah. then there are a few who have kind of been travelling and, and, and different places. So uh, so it's difficult to really keep the the, the, the family, I don't know, if not united, then even to have dialogue is Do you difficult. have a WhatsApp group or something like that? There that are, everyone's in it? Not everyone. Okay. There's differences of opinion and then some people are busier than others and don't have a, the patience to deal with a lot of the nonsense that goes around as well. So 
There's a lot. Can you imagine, in every family, as I see it, there's family politics. Yeah. And the average Australian family is about, what, 2.1 or something? Yeah, there's five people in my sort yeah. of, you know, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So we're talking about here. And even then here, there's politics. That's but right. And it's, if there's one person that's, you know, people aren't talking to, that's one out of two or three, not a big deal. But if you multiply us by we're five, five or six times the average family size, <laughs> yeah. then you're going to have five, six times the family politics. Yeah. Um, so it does get... Interesting at times. Uh, have the family politics been affected by your Without life? Without Okay, which we need to obviously broach. get into and broach. Yeah, absolutely. I first became aware of you in 2011 through an article in the Age newspaper in Melbourne. And uh, it was talking about the fact that you were sexually molested at the yeshiva. Yep. Across the road from your house where your whole world was. Yep. Um, which is terrible. But... There was another level to all of this, which was that your family was sort of being bullied by the community for coming forward and, and talking about it to the outside world. Yeah, I think, um, as, I, as I've said a number of times before, the, the abuse was uh, one thing. You know, there are some horrible people in this world who are sick. Yeah. Um, I don't like to use the word sick because often people use that as an excuse. He's sick, you know, there's an illness there so he can't be helped almost. Uh, but there are some evil people out there, however we define them. What I found so uh, just sad, for want of a better word, just heartbreaking, was the idea that when you were a little boy, you are 11 or 12, um, and you've been assaulted and you told your best friend who clearly told other people. Yes. And so you ended up in a situation where the other kids and you believe adults knew what had happened to you and like started calling you a poofta and yeah. all of this kind of stuff and reacting to you in that way. Yeah, that, that was um, very painful. Um, I, was, I remember dealing with the abuse, so what I actually went through and was going through at the time and then getting to school you know, away, trying to get away from everything, and, uh, and then you're constantly called all sorts of names, pufta, gay, and if you accidentally, you know, while you're playing basketball or whatever game, you touch someone, you can see the smirks, you can see the laughs, and then you can also hear the teasing often uh, in front of adults, uh, in front of teachers, and um, it, it, it was it was horrible. It was really horrible because there was no one to talk to about it. No. I, you know, my best friend uh, at the time betrayed me, mm -hmm. and you know, I can forgive that aspect because we all do silly things when 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 we're young, um, especially if it might work in our interest to get a bit more popular. But uh, it, it was a nightmare, and therefore it exacerbated the pain. There's no question about it, and therefore I guess in many ways I um, continued and, and responded in a in a uh, destructive way, I think. Yeah. Well, your first abuser also came from a very well-connected family, right? And in fact, you were very close to his grandfather, wasn't yes, it? Yes, very close. Um, and he had some funny views. The the abuser had some funny views about children and um, you know sex. Anyway, didn't he? That he had expressed. Well, to my father, my father mentioned that to me later on. Exactly. Yeah. That there was some question marks. That basically the can't be such thing as, as sexual abuse on, on boys because they wanted it. I'm, I'm still unclear. I can't remember the exact details yeah. about it all, but it was conveyed to me by my father. It's Obviously, at the time, we didn't know 100% that that's what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, my parents didn't know. Yeah. Uh, there was a second abuser, though, who was a man at the school who was a security person. So he was very well respected and, and relied upon to keep, 
everyone safe on the grounds. Yeah, and even more than that, in his case, uh, he was a hero to many of us kids yeah. because he used to be there, the tough guy, the black belt in karate, getting any dealing with any anti-Semitic uh, issues or when non-Jews would come onto the Yeshiva Centre. I remember so many times he'd just make sure that they'd get off the uh, the property yeah. and even if they were double, three times the size of him, he wasn't a big boy bloke, but uh, his fearlessness... Uh, always impressed us and we wanted to be like him. He was the karate teacher. So Yeah. I know through um, conversations I've had with some of the Ballarat survivors of the Catholic yep. um, perpetrators that it, they, a lot of them were assaulted by more than one person. Yes, it's very common and a lot of victims who I interact with over the years say to me, it's as if I had the big letter V on my on my forehead yes. that come and abuse me. Yeah. Um, and I, I share it with them and I know that they feel a little bit more at ease when they, if they don't already know that I was abused by two people. It's, a, it's very common. I don't feel like I did anything uh, in particular that to, to attract it, but they find vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. That's That's the expertise uh, and experience of these uh, perpetrators. They find vulnerabilities and they will... Uh, uh, they will, they will, they will uh, exploit them. Uh, that's it. That's the word I was looking for. Exploit them to the best of their ability, and it's no wonder that many perpetrators have dozens and dozens of victims. Yeah, and also uh, again with the Catholic families, a lot of them were big families. Yes, a lot of these were kids with a lot of siblings. Yes. So when you offer to come and pick the kid up and take them, drive them somewhere or take care of a job like that every week, the parents go, "Thank you, great." Yeah, yeah. and there's no way the parents can be there. No. Emotionally, physically, mm. uh, in a way that they need to be with so many kids. Yeah. It's impossible. And I've told that to my parents as much yeah. as I think that they that they did a relatively good job under the circumstances uh, because, again, you've got to contextualise it all in their environment, their community, the expectation. I mean, they've got a blessing from the Lubavitcher Rebbe to have many a large children. family. Yeah. So, you know, from their perspective, it's, it's a lot of respect and a lot of uh, wonderful things. But... Uh, you cannot be there when it, you need to be there as a parent when your child comes home. Uh, there needs to be at least one parent greeting. How was your day? Are you hungry? To pick up any signs of distress, yeah. any you cannot do that when you've got so many kids. You talk about in the book about looking forward to the weekly ear clean <laughs> because your mum used to line all of you up and come and clean your ears, and it was a, an intimate, close moment between you and your mum. They were hard to come by. Yeah, uh, I do. I don't know about weekly, but certainly when it did happen, it was it was nice and and you know it was. I remember it. I don't know why, but I guess perhaps it's because there wasn't that just quiet time, loving and sitting. It was you know there were a lot of very nice, lovely times around the Sabbath table and singing and and, and dancing at the festivals yeah, and all that. Right. So there were a lot of those types of fun moments, but those are different moments than love, because most of the time. The word love would have been used, was used in the context of loving the Lubavitcher Rebbe, loving the Bible, loving Hashem, loving your fellow Jew. It was never about loving a family member. Yeah. It was never parents or children saying to each other, I love you. That was very foreign. Okay. So, but you, you're part of this very big, very strong community. Was there a siege mentality, do you think, um, in terms of, you know, the world is against us, there are so many, uh, there's so much evidence to suggest that we as a people, um, you know, are targets and so we need to band together? Yes, um, but it would be a very different perspective to many others in the Jewish community who may not be orthodox and would have that siege mentality where especially second and third generation Holocaust survivors in Australia in particular because we've got the second uh, highest um, concentration of of such people. Um, But in the ultra-orthodox world, it's not only in relation to 
non-Jews, it's also in relation to secular Jews that may Jews. be trying to um, to make us less religious. Um, so there's suspicion of the other, no yeah. matter who they are, unless they are us. Not just, again, secular Jews, but when I think about it, it's also there is suspicion and, and immense dislike of other ultra-Orthodox Jews. Well, I remember in 2011 when your report first came out, a friend of mine, Jewish friend of mine, who's virtually pretty much non-practicing, I would say, um, I was saying to him, I don't understand. I don't understand. What, why are they so angry with him? And he said, oh, I think it's because Jewish people feel like we get enough criticism. We don't, you know, we're it's sort of a fear factor. And so maybe they feel like Manny is inviting criticism on the whole community. There is no question about that. That, that. was That was from... Uh, Again, that was mainly from the non-Orthodox necessarily. I mean, the, mm. the, the, the ultra-Orthodox is very different because they have very close community. They deal with everything inside, minimise interaction with the outside world. So that is much broader than what we've just discussed. Whereas the issue of inviting anti-Semitism mm. and the like, that was something that was uh, thrown my way repeatedly. Uh, but again, less by the... Um, by the Orthodox, it was more non-Orthodox, and often by the by those second, third generation Holocaust survivors yeah, right. uh, who who feel, okay, you know, okay, you, you mentioned it, we understand you needed justice, but why do you have to keep on going at it? Because every time we see your name by Stormfront and all these organisations, anti-Semitic organisations, saying, you see, even the the Jews are pedophiles now, oh. and they're like, you know, and my response is, these people are anti-Semites. It's not as if they need extra fodder to make them anti-Semites. They will use anything they see. Bernie Madoff is Jewish. And he was a horrible person. So they'll use that. You know, did he do it as a Jew? No, he did it as a, because he's a horrible human being mm-hmm. and he ripped off many, many people and he's rightfully sitting in jail now. Um, but, you know, of course, the anti-Semites will use it and highlight the fact that he is Jewish. I didn't even realise they were using you in that way. Yes, oh, yes, wow, yes. Okay. I was sent a lot of articles. Look at what they're doing now. So, oh. you know, and I did feel guilty about it, but I felt, you know, the reality is um, there is there is no choice. We needed to address this issue. And the ones who are probably causing anti-Semitism uh, are those leaders and rabbis who have uh, responded to this issue in a reprehensible manner. Yeah. They are the ones. Imagine if... I brought this issue to light and then all of a sudden everyone welcomed it and in the Jewish community and the leadership and they said, we're now bringing in policies and procedures. This is unacceptable. All of these people are going to resign. You know, all of this thing that I'm just telling you now, they've happened, mm. but it happened after many years yes. with a heavy price to many people, um, including myself and my family. So, so let's get into that. So as a teenager then... Um, I guess the abuse stopped when you were about 13, 14? 14 and a half, like Okay. Why did it stop, by the way? Did you... You know, I, I can't even tell you the exact time that it did stop. The reason I, I suspect it was about 14 and a half was because there was that mikveh incident where I was sexually abused inside the male uh, ritual bath, and that was the most traumatic impact, yeah. the, the most traumatic experience for me by far. Because that's a very and important ritualistic space. Absolutely, it? absolutely. So. And, and I remember also, I mean, I, I blacked out temporarily when I was sitting on the floor in the drying room and and it really that uh, it, it haunts me to this day. I mean, when I close my eyes sometimes and I think about the abuse. That is that is where that takes me. And I and I, you know, my family home is not far from there, so it was really a, a horrible place to go and think about. But um, I, I seem to recall that that was pretty much the end of it after okay. then. And I kind of I never spoke to him ever again. Um, but so, yeah, so it was the age of about fourteen. So from there, you your behaviour changed definitely. Your schoolwork. All of those things that were now we know are classic markers 
of a child who's been assaulted um, and, and other classic markers as well. You started to rebel against religion. Yeah. I mean, how did your dad cop that? Yeah. Well, you weren't even wearing the, is it yamaka? Yamaka, exactly. The kippah on the head, um, yes. head covering. You stopped uh, wearing the uniform of, of the... That's right. I, I rebelled in every possible way yeah. within, again, within the Orthodox community. It's not as if I was, you know, certainly not before the age of 15. Um, I wasn't doing any drugs, doing a little bit of alcohol mm-hmm. in the early stage, but that became a lot worse. So that's as bad as it got. But, you know, rebelling, I mean, I'm talking about switching the lights on and off on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath and, yeah. You know, eating yeah. not kosher food yeah. for, you know, someone outside the Jewish community. But it did are, exacerbate, didn't it? As you got it into did. your late teens, I mean, we're it talking did. about uh, visiting prostitutes. Yes. Um, alcohol, yes. lots of other substances, and, yeah. and yep, and your parents kind of giving you the attic room to just keep you away from the other kids. So well, that was that was already when I came back from Israel because right. I went to Israel at the age of eighteen into the army. I just needed to get away from here, yeah, of course, uh, from the community. But then you were naughty in the army. I was. You got. You ended up in jail. I did for a couple of days. I did. I mean, now it's so hard to imagine because I I think of you as so mild mannered and gentle, and and I'm reading all this stuff going, wow, <laughs> that's an intense period in Manny's life. It was. When did you, when when did it change? When did you think I've got to, I've got to face what this really is? Did you know what it really was? No, no. I had, throughout this period, I had no idea. Yeah. I knew I was carrying a, a big burden. I knew I was very angry because there were constant triggers that were that were happening, yeah. and it was easy to shut it down back then because I didn't really have you know a family for a couple of years. Also, I didn't even talk to my parents briefly, um, uh, and and I, and I we didn't have internet and phones like we do now. This was talking about mid nineties, so yeah. uh, I felt very much alone, um, and I did my own thing, and I did I abused a lot of substances, and uh, so it was easy to escape. Yeah, I didn't. Need to deal with it but then I, when I got back to Australia in the 2000 year 2000 uh, after six years in Israel I tried pursuing justice and the police weren't willing weren't able to assist they claimed lack of evidence ah, okay uh, because in 96 I came back for my sister's wedding uh, I was 20 years old then I happened to hear on the radio uh, something about um, uh, providing any information to the police if you have any information about child sexual abuse uh, so that's when I addressed it and I went to the rabbi. So the police and the rabbi weren't willing to assist me or unable to assist me. So then I uh, I went back to Israel with... That's when I ended up staying in Australia for five months instead of one month, which got me into jail because uh, I overstayed be... my... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you overstayed your sort of break from the army, didn't you? Yes. So you were in trouble with the Israeli Defence Force for yes. going AWOL, I guess. That's right, AWOL, absolutely. AWOL. And, I, and, I, and when I got back to Israel, I was my unit was... Um, they were in Lebanon at the time, and I was like... I just was in no space of mind to, to, to go all the way up to no. northern of Israel and, and continue that combat fighting that, I, that I'd been doing for the last uh, year and a half or so before I'd gone on this lengthy break. Yeah. And then I got that knock on the door from the military police one morning. I went to visit my mother in, in Israel and uh, <laughs> she'd come to visit and um, someone tipped her off, obviously. My mum claims it wasn't her, but, you know, to be honest, it wouldn't bother me because I'm glad that it, <laughs> that I got resolved. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, it wasn't a particularly pleasant stay in that jail that time. Hi, I'm Mia Friedman and I have no filter. Not in life. Not in work, and especially not on my podcast. Every fortnight, I speak to some of the world's most interesting people about life, their career, and how they feel about things. What makes I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. From Rosie Batty, I think of Luke. I'm consumed with thoughts of Luke. You know, I dream of Luke. I wake up thinking of Luke. Yeah. I'm thinking of Luke. Even when I don't realise I'm thinking yeah, of Luke. Yeah. To Terea Pitt. Well, the fly was only five seconds of my life. I don't want to let that five seconds tell me who I am and what I can do and what I, what I can't do in this world. It's the podcast where too much information is never enough. Subscribe to No Filter in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. Okay, so when did it really kick off in Australia for you and your family? Um, well, I used to, in the early 2000s, so when I came back and I was, I used to go to my parents' house and lived across the road. Um, on the Sabbath, David Cyprus, my second perpetrator, used to be standing there in charge of security in front of the synagogue often. And every time I used to walk past him and see him, he just dug a deeper hole and I used yeah. to be angry and he used to stand there and smirk at me. Oh my God. He used to stand there and just watch me walk like that and I used to try to stare back at him and I used to be so angry. To me it was it was saying, uh, we both know what happened and I got away with it. Uh, you know, on occasion I had to go inside the yeshiva centre because a brother was having a bar mitzvah, you know, some religious celebration. So I used to have to walk past him. And he was the person technically could say, you know, we can't let you in or something. And I used to stand there. And I knew that the Yeshiva Centre leadership knew about him. That's the amazing thing. Yeah, he but had they, perpetrated he, before, hadn't he? And they were told about it. We saw all of that in the Royal Commission. They were aware of about five cases before me. In fact, I believe someone said to one mother, oh, I thought we'd, I thought he was cured. That's right. I thought we'd cured him. We thought we'd like cured that. him. Yeah, and that was before I was even abused. That was 86, 87. Wow. He started abusing me, 88. So had they taken proper responsibility and addressed it properly back before it happened to me, there's a good chance that would have saved a few people from So being, no wonder he was so arrogant. Yeah, exactly. He felt he got away with it. So but So you're a grown man back yeah. at your parents' house and he's standing across the road smirking at you. Exactly. Yeah. And that eventually just built up until it was too much. Built up. I started working in the Jewish community. I caught up on my um, on my um, uh, studies because I, I finished secular studies at the age of 12 um, so I needed to do my VCE equivalent and, mm. and uh, year 12 and then I did university after that Bachelor of International Relations at La Trobe um, which was you know challenging in and of itself because at the age of 25 to start to do your first English essay <laughs> wow. um, you know usually you go year 6, 7, 8 by the time you're year 12 you already have an understanding of how these things are supposed to work whereas yeah. you know my 
English language wasn't particularly great because I'd been living in Israel for six years speaking Hebrew. And so it was a lot of catch up. Uh, But it was a really fun experience, especially going to university because, you know, uh, VC kind of showed me that I can study a little bit and it could be interesting. And I had a lot of interesting experiences at university. Uh, My activism, I think, for the first time, uh, I started uh, getting involved in that area, mostly on the pro-Israel advocacy. That led me to, um, as soon as I finished university, I got a, a position at the, in the Jewish community commenting anti-Semitism. I was the head of the Anti-Defamation Commission of the B'nai B'rith. So it was kind of the Jewish community's anti-Semitism monitors or whatever. So you were way back in the fold by that stage. Did your family I, feel that? You weren't, I don't know if you were, shab- sorry, Chabad? Definitely, yeah, that's interesting. So I was back in the fold from the Jewish community perspective, but certainly not back in the fold from a religious or the Chabad community. Very, very big difference. And that's, I think, one of the big differences between the Catholic Church, for example, and the Jewish community, that if you leave your religion as a Catholic person, you're not really a Catholic anymore because it's a religion. Jewish... Judaism is much more than a religion. It's a culture, it's a history, it's a common language, it's an identity, it's a community. Uh, So there are many, most in the Jewish community are not religious. Mm. So I've always had that element of Jewish pride in me. Hopefully not Certainly the rest of the version. world always sees you as Jewish, whether you practice exactly. or... Well, all Jews will see you Jewish. If right. you were born Jewish, a Jewish mother, or you converted to Judaism in a halakha, in a, in, a, in a Jewish law kind of way, um, then you will be uh, forever be okay. recognised as a Jew. Even if you go and become a Catholic, that's not recognised. Okay. Your you're stuff, that's it. You're yeah. Jew for life. Jew for life. Jew for life. <laughs> Wow. So, okay, so, so then I started working in that environment, and that's for the first time I actually understood the power of the media. Yes. Uh, because that, I was dealing with the media a lot on the issue of anti-Semitism, and that's when I started talking to my wife. You know, I've gone to the rabbi, I've gone to, to my senior rabbi, I've gone to the police, no one can help me. And this person, meanwhile, is standing in front of you, Shiva, uh, having access to children. So it's not just Still. about the justice in the past, it's about the fact that he's a danger to children today and the Yeshiva Center is not willing to do anything about it. Because I went back to Rabbi Groner, the late Rabbi Groner, and had a meeting in his office and said to him, you know, he's standing here doing security because we're dealing with it, he's, he's, uh, he's seeing a therapist and I'm getting regular updates. I said, that's great, but can you assure me that he's no longer offending today or that he will not offend in the future mm. by virtue of his position, access everywhere? And he said, no. And I just... How can someone do that? It was amazing to me. But I walked out and that was the end of it. Yeah. So, but then ultimately we decided we started having children. Yes. 2004, 2006, 2008. And, um, and then we knew all the taboos and the stigma attached to this issue. Mm. And uh, my wife and I discussed it. I really did, I wanted to disclose my story then. But we decided against it because of the kids. But then 2011 came along and there were a number of... Um, of uh, developments that kind of made it more appropriate and right, felt more right for me to disclose it publicly, not least was because I was at the time the Vice President of the Executive Council of Australian Jewry, which is the peak body of the Australian Jewish community. Wow. So I, I moved to Canberra with my family. I came. The, I became the President of the Jewish community there while I was working for government in, in counter-terrorism, in, in wow. uh, um, the Office of Transport Security. Uh, and, you know, that was interesting, but I, I have my views about working in the public sector, mm-hmm. um, which 
I'm not all that favourable, to be honest. I guess I'm just not a natural public uh, uh, servant. Yeah. I feel too restricted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, but it was an experience as well, and I, I think I utilised that as well, that opportunity. Uh, but ultimately, in 2011, we just felt, I just felt that enough, I needed to, it was burning me, and I had to do it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and then 8th of July, 2011, it was out, front page of uh, the Age newspaper. Wow, and that was that. And then finally... What happened? Law enforcement finally were interested. Who? Well, they were. They already gained some interest because they were getting some more material uh, information was coming to them. So they wanted to get in contact with me because they had heard my name involved. Uh, but there was still there weren't enough people coming forward. And then suddenly, uh, after my article, there were fifteen victims oh, wow. in relation to David Cypress who went to the police. He's your first... Second, second. 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 Oh, that's second right. One. This is the security man. That's right. Yeah. The first one went to live in, in America. Okay. He's been there since. Um, insufficient evidence to extradite him here. And because he's at this stage, back. He's never coming back, I suspect. Yeah. Um, I'm aware of two other alleged victims. So hopefully when they gather the, the, the courage to go to the police, because I, I've spoken to one directly and indirectly to another, it's difficult to go through a whole process of an extradition and then you've got to go testify and cross-examination. Hopefully they'll be ready and then we can make sure that children are safe um, today and also that he'll be held to account for what happened in the past. So when did I see, when after that did you make a documentary for the ABC? What, when would that have happened? Because I remember then seeing something that was mostly about the community's reaction to you and your dad and your dad was suffering terribly. Absolutely, yes. Um, well, the documentaries came out. The first one, Code of Silence, was on, in um, screened in 2014. Right. And then Breaking the Silence, which came out last minute kind of um, project as a result of what was going on at the Royal Commission, yeah. um, that came out in 2015. So it's, they're both fairly, uh, fairly, fairly new. So and, tell us what how the community reacted. Look, in the beginning... Uh, in the first few days was a lot of support. Finally, it's out there. We need to talk about it. So, you know, that was almost across the board. Um, But then the attacks, even after the first week, uh, because don't forget, I'm no longer Chabad, so I wasn't exposed to what was going on in the Chabad, in the yeshiva centre behind the scenes. But I'm told that straight away they attacked, uh, including this chief rabbi, Rabbi Telsner, at the yeshiva centre, who made the notorious uh, speeches, uh, one to AVB, who's another victim who, who um, went through the Royal Commission process, who's, they don't say his name, they use AVB, but then towards my father as well, uh, which also through him uh, towards me is the way I felt, who gave you permission? which is really the name of the book, who gave you permission to speak out about this issue. Like we needed to get the authorization because ultimately uh, his father-in-law, this rabbi's father-in-law was the late Rabbi Groner. So his his late father was getting scrutinized, that Yeshiva Center was getting scrutinized and attacked, criticized by many people because we've all knew the secrets for decades. Yeah. Many people knew about it. Also the wider community is starting, I guess, to scrutinize, to even realize... Chabad exists, and then go, hang on, who are these people? Yes, yes. So the whole community is being scrutinised. That's right. Look, and, they, and they, that's right. They were, a, they reflected the the broader Jewish community, and it was having a detrimental impact on all of us. I was walking down the street, and people were saying to me, it's really not fair, because now the perception out there is that the entire Jewish community has got this problem, where really it's the Yeshiva Center, and before that the Adas community. Uh, and I felt for them, and, and it was interesting. In the beginning, I was learning... To use the be very careful with the words you you use, you know, Jewish community, as opposed to you know when we talk about 
general matters, the Jewish community, but when we talk about this particular case, it's got to be the ultra-Orthodox or the yeshiva centre, uh, okay. being specific not to tar everyone with the same brush. But then soon after, when you had organisations, like a, the one I was a vice president of, the Executive Council of Australian Jewry, um, at some point I, I resigned because I, was, um, I no longer held the, the positions, um, they were getting involved in this issue and they were uh, almost critical of us. And I do get stuck into into Danny Lamb, who was the president at the time. Uh, he gave a, a horrible interview, probably the worst interview, most offensive interview uh, towards me and other victims, even though he didn't name us. But he was essentially standing by the Yeshiva Center's side, saying, I just got off the phone with them. They are fully um, cooperating with the police. They, they've assured me and, and there is no, they're not going to leave any stone unturned in, in terms of justice and all of that. Meanwhile, you've got a police detective standing uh, in court saying that there have been lies going on, that it's been very hard to crack. Uh, even the, the district attorney in, in New York, just so people, people to understand the, the, the stranglehold of the leadership within the community. Um, uh, Mr. Hines, I forget his name, from uh, who's a district attorney in the Brooklyn uh, County in New York, which is a large Hasidic and ultra-Orthodox group. He said, I've been in law enforcement for over 20 years and dealing with the mafia but nothing comes close to when you're dealing with the ultra-Orthodox community. Wow. More difficult than the mafia. Okay? So it's difficult for anyone who hasn't grown up in that kind of environment mm. to really understand what it means to live in that kind of world because they've got enormous power. Kids uh, are, are, are going into school at reduced fees. A lot of the community are, re are reliant upon them for um, reduction of school fees, for jobs, for, um, for community stature, and all those types of things. And if you're on the outer with the leadership, you'll feel it. You're, you're, my, as my father felt it, no one wanted to even study Torah with him, to study the Bible with him. He used to study with a few of the with a few senior people at the Yeshiva Center. Yeah. And then because of all of this, sorry, we can no longer study with you. Yeah, it's shocking. It's no wonder he stopped becoming a Chabad follower. He just, did? Uh, yes, just, just before the Royal Commission. Um, he had a lot of question marks. And um, uh, he took the decision on the eve, I think, on that day, the day before, to trim his beard, which is a massive, massive step. I mean, Chabad mm -hmm. adherence, you've got to keep a beard. And uh, he, he, his rationale for doing it then is, was... I'm going to be going to the Royal Commission every day to the public hearing for two weeks. When people see me, they're going to think I'm a yeshiva person because I look like them. So he really wanted to take that physical uh, separation of, of himself and the yeshiva center, and that that made him feel a lot uh, a lot more um, uh, different from 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 that he could be recognised as a different person. And and more and more over the last uh, year or so, he's now made it very clear he's no longer chabad. He regards chabad as a cult. Uh, and look, many people do. Uh, people often ask me what I think about Chabad. I think they've got a lot of uh, cult-like uh, tendencies. Wow. Uh, but it's the, you know the fact that it all revolves around the one leader. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that closed community, you cannot criticize. You cannot be. You cannot say anything on the side. Um, you know, that, Offside. Other sects refer to it as idol worshipping, don't they? That's right. Um, many other sects were critical of Chabad itself as well. Mm. So, look, it's difficult because at the same time, I also admire and respect so much about Chabad in terms of, you know, if I was genuinely religious and, and, and wanted to live in that kind of lifestyle, Chabad would be the place to go because they're just, it's so happy and so positive and it, it's outreach. You know, I criticize a lot of the things when I grew up with Chabad, but 
you know, they gave me a lot of the tools that I needed as well um, in terms of what I would regard as being my success, interacting with the outside world in terms of Judaism is not a proselytizing religion, mm-hmm. but Chabad goes, goes and does outreach between other Jews. So as a kid, a 10, 11-year-old would have walked hours and hours in the pouring rain or in the hot sunshine, always with a suit and a jacket, just to find that Jew who's recovering, the old man in the, in the hospital three hours away to, get, to blow the, the, the ram's horn on Rosh Hashanah uh-huh. for him so he can hear that commandment or to go and read the Bible for him, or to give him the fonts to shake the lulav. And the, so just to go do a mitzvah, to make them feel good, to say a blessing. Because if we got them to do that, that would bring the Messiah a step closer. So many wonderful memories I honestly have of it, and I think about it. And it's just such a shame that all these other negative things, that they weren't able to address it. Because you know what? I never felt the Chabad needed to be perfect mm. and even address these things perfectly because, you know, times were different back then. Even us as a broader secular society, we dealt with things differently then. Yeah. And all they needed to do is to come out and say, mea culpa, we are sorry. We did make immense mistakes. Mm. What can we do to correct it? And I reached out to them numerous times through third parties so they can't deny and say, no, I did Former classmates within the Yeshiva Center mm. went to them. Maddie is willing to talk to you off the record. He can sign a, a document, a confidentiality agreement that would forbid him to even acknowledge that he met with you. But just talk to him so you understand what the issues are, how you can progress. Our lawyers are dealing with it. Yeah. You know, so, so if that's how they wanted to deal with it, I had no choice. And I had to get my lawyers involved. Mm-hmm. And I had to use my public campaign and my skills and, 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 and connections to, 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 to fight them almost. But it didn't need to be a battle. We all could have been on the same side, just like now we, are, we have almost come to be. It's not perfect. There have been many issues along the way. But at the same time, there's been incredible progress, positive developments at Yeshiva, and for that matter, more broadly in the Jewish world, mm. around, around the world, uh, in many places. And it's been wonderful to see because, you know what, um, a lot of the members of the Jewish community who are in this field around the world have looked towards Australia and what's happened here. The Royal Commission was an incredible uh, milestone for the Jewish world. For the Jewish world, the of Catholic course, world as well. Of course, mm. even broader than that, yeah. exactly right. Because you know, it wasn't. It was also sporting clubs within yeah. Australia. Yeah. So absolutely, but if I talk about the Jewish community, the impact wasn't felt only in the Shiva Center, which was the one under the investigation, or the Jewish community in Australia, which we are here living here. It, the impact was enormous, and there's a reason why it was the most widely watched. Uh, Royal Commission on the live uh, on the internet mm. was because many of the Jewish community in Israel in America were tuned in and watching it. Yeah. So that that was it was such an important milestone that it did cause a massive shift in the Jewish world. It exposed them to things none of us were ever exposed to. Seeing rabbis on the stand and wow. finally um, uh, accepting some responsibility, apologizing for what happened. All things they could have done a year, two years ago when they didn't have a gun to their head. So I can understand a lot of people are very cynical about it. Sometimes I, I get into that little cynicism, uh, but but I guess for me, it's I just want to move forward. I try to not forget the past because you can't forget it. I've got that in my nightmares and my flashbacks. Not, and I'm not talking about just the abuse. I'm talking about the nightmares of the fact that no one got up and supported us publicly. Yeah. There was not one leader Orthodox or otherwise, 
mainstream Jewish community who got up and said, this is disgusting what is going on here. Victims are being vilified and attacked, and it's unacceptable. Not one. Not one lead Jewish leader did that at any stage for years. We were the ones. I was the one who used to have to wake up every morning to look at the blogs, to look at the horrible things written about me personally, about my family. It was my family who wasn't, who felt, family members who felt they couldn't go to certain areas in the Jewish community because of the way they were being looked at or treated or felt the negative uh, energy from people because, you know, you are Manny's wife or Manny Wax's wife or whoever. And it was, it was hurtful. It was hurtful, and, and I had to put on this facade of, you know, I am the public spokesman. I had to put the family issues to the side as much as I could, wasn't able, always able to do that, mm-hmm. but I was the one giving a voice to the victims, to the voiceless, and I had to, therefore, keep as focused as I could. Um, I, I did that for a while, but I guess it all, it's all caught up with me, basically. What makes you say that? Where are you at now? I mean, you're not living in Melbourne anymore. You've moved to Israel, right? As have your parents. Yes. Um, well, we, we were chased out of Australia is how we feel. Wow. Um, there's no question. I mean, I feel like I'm in exile. Uh, in the last few years, you know, we tried to take a bit of a step back while focusing on, on a bigger picture type things. I'm still involving myself in this field um, from a global perspective in the Jewish world, but wanted to focus less on victim support because, you know, there's my trauma, but then I deal with hundreds of victims hearing their traumatic experiences. Um, and then when you multiply that, you know, year by year, it was just, you know, the trauma, it wasn't personal trauma only, it was also vicarious trauma. Yeah. And and that's when you when you start getting nightmares about those types of things. When you hear a parent is tall telling you about the fact that he's just found out that a, uh, their parents uh, have been, or a parent has been abusing their child for the last few or four years and they, and they have Sabbath meals with them every year and, you know, the, the, the perpetrator and the victim are both there in the room at the same table. Mm-hmm. How do you address these things? And much more common story than people actually believe happens. Um, it gets to a stage where, especially when I never dealt with my own stuff, um, in terms of therapy, I saw therapists here and there over the years because that's another issue in ultra-Orthodox world that uh, you go to a therapist if you're weak, if you have issues, if you're crazy, only then do you take things like medication. That's like another. So I had to break all, break all those boundaries in my own mind about going to seek psychological help. Mm. And I never really did it. Or t- even when I did, I forced myself. Um, but it got to a stage where, you know, living with daily, especially in the last few years, anxiety. And I'm talking about anxiety. I've, I've had anxiety on occasion. It was never an issue for me. But I'm talking about waking up in the morning and feeling difficulties breathing because of the heart is racing and you're like just taking deep breaths, lying in bed. Uh, and then, you know, when that goes away, or sometimes it doesn't come and you're just feeling a sense of paralysis where I've got so much I need to do. And my brain is saying, I've got a meeting here. I need to do this. I need to do that. But I'm just lying in bed, just physically and I guess emotionally unable to move. Just paralysis. And then when you add on top of that uh, depression, and when you add on top of that suicide ideation, where uh, many days, I'll tell you, this morning was a tough one. Really? Getting, thinking, lying in bed, feeling like I want to be dead. It just it would make my problems go away. I will, I will have peace. Uh, you know, when I hear someone die, someone I know, sometimes there's jealousy in me. It's so sad, but I know, but I just feel at least he's in peace now. He can't feel the pain. And, and it's, I know it's not a healthy way to think about it. Um, but to me, 
I, I, the way what pushes it away from my mind really is my kids. Yeah. You know, and I say, I know I've got three kids. I cannot do it to them. It's just not right. And, and, I, and I use that um, sometimes consciously to get away from those negative thoughts because I know that shakes me up, my kids. Uh, I, you know, I love them, obviously, and, and, and cannot give them that damage. I know that happens apparently when, uh, when a parent commits suicide. Um, but yeah, but you know, some days are harder than other days, but it's there often throughout the day interspersed where either it's a thought of just wanting to be, to be dead or a more, or a more active thought of, of I want to kill myself and thinking about how, what ways I would do that. And it's destructive again, it impacts your entire day mm. and it just, it goes around in circles and you can't be around people. You just need your, your space. But then other times you're f- constantly seeking escapes how do i escape how do i escape from this pain and i'm still uncomfortable talking about what i do as part of those escapes but i need i have found those things obviously i've got therapy and i've got friends um you know occasionally there's alcohol and occasionally there's other things but um sometimes there's healthy things sometimes unhealthy things i try to do uh, yeah med- med- meditation is not something that i've yeah that has come naturally i can't sit still so I, but I, sometimes i just take some deep breaths and 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 just go by myself a little bit and and battle along that's, that's but you but you're in regular counseling you have i'm in israel uh, I, I go four times a week yeah which is crazy and, and that is also difficult i mean going to counseling i thought you go there and you feel better but i'm getting psychoanalysis so it's just preparing for each session and then you're in the session for an hour, and yeah. then the rest of the day is almost a write-off because you just dealt with incredibly difficult things. Are you medicated? I just started that two months ago. Again, as I that? said before, well, firstly, it was a big, big hurdle to go across because it's medication, and I'm crazy. Like I, I need medication. It took a long time for my therapist to say, you know, when people have flu, they go to that's take right, medication. You take your medicine. That's um, right. When so people I, have cancer, right. they take the medication. I, I'm starting to yes. understand it and accept it. You're such a fighter, though, aren't you? You're, it seems by nature you're a fighter, and yep. you must be tired of fighting. Exhausted. I, mean, yeah. I agree. You know, look, I, I am. I, I don't take things lying down. I remember even in the, in the therapy course and I, in the, sorry one of my therapy sessions I was lying down and there was something that triggered me related to the yeshiva center here and it was one of the most horrible experiences I've ever had because I actually I remember I, I, I got up I, I was just crying and I just and I got up and I said and, and I felt I, she, my therapist lives across the road from the beach in Herzliya and I needed to get up and I, I said I just need to get up and walked around the room made her a bit nervous and I said I just need to go out and I just and I went outside and she said okay I need to go anywhere. I felt in my head I wanted to go to the beach and just walk with my clothes on into the beach, into the water, and just and just go and disappear and not yeah. come back. And you know, and that felt it felt like such a relief afterwards. But then, of course, I thought about the pain and I'm causing other people and all that, so that was difficult. But um, that's that's the level of the difficulty. That, but then I came back and I said to her, "Okay, I'm gonna. I, I don't want to lie down. I can feel that it's going to be difficult, but I, I don't. They've taken so much from me." And I'm going to just fight back and I'm going to force myself to lie back and just do it. And I, it was so hard to lie back and, and, you know, I wanted to get up all the time and the tears and the, and the anxiety and everything. It was really a difficult fight back. But that's what she said to me, what you just said to me. You're a fighter. You, just, you will not give up. You will not give in. And as difficult as it is, and that's true. And I say, 
if it means I have to pay either a life sentence or ultimately a death penalty for it, then at the very least what gives me a bit of the satisfaction or vindication or the, 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 the power and energy to continue is really the change that is happening in our community and, and, and the positive feedback from individual victims and their families um, to hear the story and they say, you know, I've never been to a therapist, or I've never done this, or I've never gone to the police and I've just heard your story and I'm going to do that. And parents talking to their kids more about prevention. I'm now talking to my kids. That does give me hope and it gives me the energy to continue those, you know, even in those very difficult and dark times. Um, in some ways I feel like I have taken the path of more caring about the community than about my own family because I have put that ahead and it's not fair and all I can say is I hope really hope my kids will understand one day and forgive me for it oh I'm Um, sure they'll more than understand I'm sure they must be very very proud of you I mean it's obvious to everyone if it's not obvious to you that you have saved so many other little boys who will never know that this could have happened to them there are other men walking around Melbourne and walking around the world right now who have been allowed to grow up with that positivity that you had at 10, with that love for the community, with that, you know, with everything that was taken from you. And that's because of you, because of what you've done. We'll never know their names. We'll never know what could have happened to them if it weren't for you. But your kids will know that. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I'm fortunate to know many of the names because they do contact me privately to let me know that. And and I guess it's probably important for people to know the amount of attacks I get publicly is often, but also the amount of support I get both publicly and privately does create a bit of a balance. Yeah. Oh, Manny, you're breaking my heart. I hope that you can find some peace. Thank you. Peace seems like a long way away from you. Does it feel that way to you? I mean... It does. Look, to be honest, I mean, sitting across from you, I think... It's not. It's not that far away from you, but you're such a fighter. You've got to learn to give up the fight at some point. Do you ever see that happening? Do you ever see a time when you'll say, okay, I've done my bit. I'm off now to... Possibly. Look, and I think when I write that in the book, I I take it day by day. I'm Mm. I'm going to try not to push the boundaries too much for what's healthy and what's good for me, but I don't feel I can stop yet. There is just too much to do. There is no one else doing what I'm doing in the Jewish community from a global perspective. There are a few individuals working in their local communities, sometimes in the US and in Israel, but there's no one coordinating everything, what's going on and having that interaction. And that's kind of my big vision and dream is to be able to do that and, and, and really change the conversation broadly in the Jewish community. And that is happening. We'll see that in another generation or two but for as long as I feel like I can do it I'll do it it's not going to be lifelong I suspect um, but I'm hoping to for the time that I am able to do it to do give it the best shot yeah. and, and that's why I'm you know doing as much as I can in this public space oh thank you so much I can't thank you thank enough you. I'm such a big fan of yours just stay alive yeah thank you Michelle thank you <laughs> thank you the music you're listening to and you've heard throughout this podcast is a traditional Tibetan Buddhist song. It's dedicated to the Medicine Buddha. It's believed by Tibetans to promote peacefulness and healing, which I'm sure is what we all wish for many. The song is performed in this instance by my friend Tenzin Choyul, and you can find it on his album called Tibet Awakened Heart, which is available on iTunes. If you're struggling with suicidal feelings, I would urge you to call Lifeline on 13 13- Double one one four. Have 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 